One thing you may or may not know about me, depending on how long you've known me, is that for about the first 16 years of my ministry, I was a youth pastor, and uh, my heart still kind of beats for, for youth and young adults. I always think about ministry kind of in that way, regardless. And I remember a few years ago, I was picking a game <clears throat> for a particular event, and I came across a list of, uh, of games and activities that we should no longer do in youth ministry. And one in particular caught my eye because I recognized it. Not because I'd done it, but when I was in like junior high, I clearly remember being somewhere where we did this. And I, I don't know where it was or what it was, but I remember doing it. Now, some of you who are maybe, how do I say this uh, politely, a, a little more experienced, let's put it that way, may remember in science class, uh, you had metal stools to sit at like your, your spot, Not, nothing comfortable. It's all metal, the whole thing. Anybody have like all metal stools when you're in? Yeah. So I, I'm not that old. Maybe I am. But we had it too. And so uh, they would take at youth group a metal stool, an all metal stool, and they'd play this game called Hot Seat. Now, we did this during the pandemic where our leaders would help our students get to know them better. And so they, they were on the hot seat and they were asked questions. This hot seat was a little different. Same thing, ask questions, you know, answer these questions. Someone was invited to the front. They'd sit on the hot seat. But here's the difference. Uh, they weren't talking about themselves like we did a couple years ago. They were answering trivia questions. And if they got it wrong, uh, they got a penalty. The penalty went like this, and this is why it was called a hot seat. The metal, I can't even believe this, the metal stool was connected to a car battery, and the person running the event had a switch where they would turn it on or off. And the person sitting, you see where this is going, right? Sitting on the metal stool, if they got a question wrong, would get a shock. That's crazy, right? Um, I don't know. So, yeah, I, I never did that. I didn't want a, a lawsuit against myself or the church or something like that. But have you ever had a time like that where you've been on the hot seat or you are forced to make a decision, answer a question, do something, it's like really high stakes, and there's something really uh, like important. Uh, you've got to get this right, and if you don't, there's a big consequence. So it's high stakes, you've got very little time, and you've got to do this thing, and, and it's, you, it's up to you. And when we enter into chapter 2 of Daniel, that's exactly where we find Daniel. Now, uh, this is a really long chapter. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but we're not going to read the whole thing. So here's what I encourage you to do today and through the remainder of this series. If you're not in the habit of bringing an app or a Bible or something like that, bring it. Uh, because I'll only be referring to certain verses, but I would encourage you to have it right open. Be reading it while I talk. Go through the chapter yourself, um, because you may pick up some other things that we can't look at the whole thing in our time here or we'll be here a really long time. But it starts out with King Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan, wicked king. He has been granted um, victory by God over the southern kingdom of Judah, carted them all away. He's taken all their best and brightest and best-looking young men and put them into this process by which he'll assimilate them and get rid of Jewish culture, make them Babylonian, and in, in such, take away the foundation of their lives, which is faith in Yahweh, faith in the one true God. And King Nebuchadnezzar in the beginning verses of chapter 2 has a disturbing dream. And he's quite upset about this. And so in their culture, they would have uh, astrologers, 
uh, magicians, seers, fortune tellers, uh, dark priests, these type of things who would come and interpret dreams. And he calls them all in and says, I need to know what the interpretation to this dream is. But here's the thing. He, he calls them all in, and these guys stall for time. They're quite worried because they can tell the king is really agitated. And they start stalling for time and, and a, a asking more questions and saying to the king, look, it's fine. You, you regularly call us in to interpret things. But now you're demanding that we tell you the dream as well. So King Nebuchadnezzar was basically saying to these guys, look, if, if you're worth your salt, if, if you're worth anything, you're not only going to be able to interpret my dream, you should be able to tell me my dream. So if you don't tell me my dream and interpret it, there's going to be some problems. And then we find verse 10. The astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great or powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. That's really important for us to just log that away here. They're saying the truth. What you're asking is too much for a mortal. Uh, and so the gods know your dream. The gods know the interpretation to this dream and the gods don't walk among the earth. How on earth are we going to know this? And King Nebuchadnezzar is furious because he sees the way they're like trying to play him, right? And stall for time. And So in that culture, these astrologists, these fortune tellers, they would do some of the same psychological tricks that modern day fortune tellers do as well. Asking questions and they kind of have this book and they go through things and come up with this answer that's vague enough that it can apply to anyone and, and people are amazed, but it's really psychological tricks. Now, there are those who depend on the demonic as well. And so we don't know what mixture these people are doing that, but there are definitely people then and people now who use psychological tricks to fake that they're telling your future. There are others who depend on dark spiritual forces and dabble in the demonic. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care. He sees through what they're trying to do with him, sees their character, and he says, if you don't tell me my dream and tell me the interpretation, I will he literally says, I will rip you limb from limb. I'll burn your houses to the ground. And that's exactly what he has done. He sends out to all the corners of Babylon for his captain of his guard, Arioch, to gather together all the seers, magicians, astrologers, fortune tellers, all this. Bring them all together. Kill them all. That's it. They can't tell me the stream. Now, why is Nebuchadnezzar so adamant? Is he that bad of a guy? Well, yes. But secondly, in their culture and their religion, they believed that the king was put in place by the gods. And a key method of communication by the gods was dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar, having such a disturbing dream, believed it was from the gods and it was something important. It would tell him something important for how he needed to lead. And he desperately wanted to know it because it was disturbing him to his core. So calling these astrologers wasn't just something he kind of did. Everything was on the line and it was important to him. So Arioch goes out and he gathers together all these people and eventually he comes to Daniel and his three friends, which we heard about last chapter, we'll get into next chapter. 
Verse 14, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, okay, like, no, <laughs> nothing, no explanation, knock, knock, hey, Daniel, hey, friends, I'm here to kill you. Uh, Daniel handled the situation, notice it, with wisdom and discretion. Now, probably timeline, Daniel and his friends are still within their three years of training. They're not even astrologers, seers, they're not even set about to serve in the king's court, but the king is so angry, he puts an edict to wipe them all out. And so Ariok comes to wherever Daniel and his friends are staying in their training and knocks on the door and is there to kill them. And Daniel handles the situation with wisdom and discretion. Pay attention to that. He asked Ariok, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? Why are we going to be killed? At least tell us that before you do this. So Ariok told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once. Look at that. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. So Daniel is behaving with integrity. He goes to the king, but the king can see through him. And he knows that Daniel's not stalling for time. Daniel just simply says, hey, hey, this is new, this is new news. Give me a little bit of time with this. Daniel goes back, and as he's handling this with wisdom and discretion, the text says, he begins to pray, and he invites, he elicits the prayer of the, his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and, and uh, Ananiah. What? I've got that wrong. What's his? Azariah. I'm so confused between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they don't go by those names till next chapter. So uh, he's got his three friends praying for him, and this is what happens. He gets the interpretation and the dream itself. As he's praying with these three, God tells him what the dream is, and God tells him what the interpretation is. And you have in Daniel 2, I don't know if he puts it to song, but he has this wonderful, at least a psalm of praise. And he gives praise to God, and then he goes to the king. And from the context and the way it's plural from this point on, it seems like these three friends are with him. It's three friends are with him. And so they go back to the king. Now, what's important here from a textual point of view is that somewhere in around here when the, uh, uh, the magicians start talking to the king, they began replying in Aramaic. And the book of Daniel begins to be written. It's no longer in Hebrew in, in chapter 2. From chapter 2 to 7, it's written in Aramaic. And scholars believe that's because that chapter 1 primarily deals with Jewish people, with Judah. And the application there would be primarily for followers of God. And after chapter 7, it's prophecies about end times and would primarily be applicable to those who follow the Most High. But chapters 2 through 6 are universal. And so it's written in the Babylonian um, language. It's written in Aramaic. So Daniel goes back to the king, and here's what he says, verse 27. Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. Daniel actually agrees with what the king has heard from the other magicians and seers. Nobody can tell you this, king. This is ridiculous what you're asking. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And now it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret to your dream. 
but because God, listen to this, God wants you to understand what was in your heart. So what God put in your heart, you were right. It didn't come from the gods. It came from God. And he put it in your heart and he wants you to understand it. And I will tell it. Daniel takes himself out of the equation. He's just a messenger. Look at the humility in this incredibly stressful, intense situation. His life and the lives of others, those he knows, and his captors. Right? These other astrologers and things. Like, they're captive. There, he steps aside and he shows about his faith. There's two themes that come up in what Daniel says here that we're going to find throughout the rest of the book. The first is that uh, God has a plan, so or God makes the plan. God is sovereign. God's in control. So that's part of God's nature, but that's also a foundational belief of Daniel. So that comes out in what he says. There's a God above. He's ordained this. He's in charge. And secondly, it's only that God who can reveal these plans. And this comes up again and again. God orders things. God's in charge. And he can show his followers how to follow him and walk those plans out. God is the one who makes the plans. And God is the one who reveals the plans. This comes up again and again and again. What amazing faith and courage that Daniel had uh, to go before the king and the interesting thing here is the verses that precede this, uh, Arioch, that commander, you know, who went out to gather people and, and kill them, when he comes back into the king, he's trying to take credit for Daniel. He's like, king, 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 look what I did. I found this, this uh, Judahite, this, this person from Judah, and he can tell you, king's not having any of it, right? Everybody's trying to be about themselves and hide their own, you know, save their own skin and sidestep things and ask for more time. And they're all over the map. And Daniel is just, has wisdom and he has discretion and he's calm and he's courageous. Because what comes next in Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream and then interpreting it took a great deal of courage. Because it's not really bad, but it's not really good either. It's not what a seer or astrologer would typically tell the most powerful king. Remember, this is the most powerful king in the world. This is the superpower. This is the guy. And when the guy says, you don't tell me my dream and the interpretation, he means it and he'll kill you on the spot. He can do that and he will. But Daniel shows courage to say what God told him to say. What would you do? Most of these seers would say, oh, great king, you know, your dream means that, you know, you'll have wonderful many years or butter them up. And the king already had that, saw through it. So verse 31, in your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. Daniel is validating the, the most powerful man in the world is showing weakness and he's distressed. And Daniel doesn't mock him. Daniel doesn't sidestep that. He validates how the king is feeling. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace. 
like chaff on a threshing floor. So that's the stuff off the, the, the wheat that they don't use. They would beat it and it would fly away in the wind. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. And so his interpretation went something like this. Each part of the statue is a different kingdom. And with each material, the kingdoms change. You, O great Nebuchadnezzar, are fine gold. You have the greatest, the most expansive kingdom. And eventually one will come that will overtake you. And as you go down the statue from the gold to the silver to the bronze to the iron and the clay, each successive kingdom that will replace the one before will not be as great and magnificent because the material is not as beautiful, but the material, though it wanes in beauty, it gets less beautiful, precious, and costly, it becomes stronger. So bronze is stronger than gold, and iron and clay are stronger than silver. And so these kingdoms will rise up from among men stronger and will overthrow the kingdom before them, but the kingdom they start will never be as great. And here's where this debate comes in again about the authorship and the dating of Daniel. So Daniel speaks this, and as historians have looked back, the way that these kingdoms are, the widest accepted uh, view of who these kingdoms refer to are Babylon, that's clear right in the prophecy, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The next, the chess and harms of silver, is the Media Persia uh, Empire, which we'll see in a few chapters, actually overthrows the Babylonians within the book of Daniel. Then there's the Greek the Greek Empire, and then Rome. However, that's those who believe in the supernatural because the accuracy to which Daniel speaks this, to which God gives this prophetic dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and then it plays out in, in the history of humankind, those who don't believe in the supernatural say, this can't be. And so those who believe that this was actually written in the 2nd century B.C. Last, year, uh, last week I accidentally said 2nd century A.D. 2nd century B.C. So it's either in the 6th century B.C., 600 B.C. when Daniel lived, or there are those who believe it's written in the 2nd century. And those who believe it's written in the 2nd century believe it was written uh, and it's attributed to Daniel. It's all fake. And they already know the history, so they write this prophecy. And they look at history and they say, well, let's write this thing that's already come true. And those people believe it was Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece because Rome hadn't yet risen to power. But it doesn't make any sense. When you look at some of the specifics, we're not going to get into a lot of the prophetic. But the most important thing we need to understand about this is that rock that's cut from a mountain, not made by human hands. So in this vision, there's this rock that's cut from a mountain, not by human hands. The implication is that all these other kingdoms, this statue is made by human hands. It's human kingdoms. This other rock cut from a mountain is not. So when we, when we think of scripture and mountain, it could be that Daniel recognized what the mountain stood for. And so a lot of scholars believe that mountain, when Daniel said that, what mountains would they look back to? Either Sinai were the God's law and commandments, or more than likely, the mountain of Zion, the hill of Zion where Jerusalem is. They would be looking back to going back to the promised land. 
This is the hub of where the temple is, of where God's presence comes from. And from that mountain comes a rock. Who's the rock? Christ. And while all these other kingdoms are being built, another kingdom is formed. Not by human hands, and it's formed the whole time. And eventually, when it comes, it smashes the others to bits, meaning it's stronger, more beautiful, and will outlast because it becomes a mountain that covers the whole earth. And since the time of Christ, he has a kingdom that's now and not yet. All of his, the kingdom of God is like. Think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. They're interchangeable. is like a mustard seed. And Jesus said this, and a mustard seed is a tiny seed. And the thing about mustard, the mustard plant, it grew into this massive tree that no farmers wanted. Nobody wanted this thing. It was a weed. It was invasive. It went all over the place. You couldn't barely control it. And so this rock would come and spread, and there was a greater kingdom. And so Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and the implication is this, that history is controlled and known by a personal God who even though this is a pagan king wants to know him and is reaching out to him. He's, he's the one who rules the known world then or at least most of it. And God is reaching out to him and Daniel clings to his faith in this. Really there's two responses. Let's consider the response. Uh, over here we'll talk about the astrologers uh, the magicians, the seers, you know, all that, that, those type of people. And over here we have Daniel, and he's supported by his three friends. This group over here, how do they respond? Well, they respond from fear, a foundation of fear. Fear under fire is fast and frantic. So when you're under fire, when you're on the hot seat, fear makes you fast and frantic. You want to figure this out quick. But faith, faith, Daniel, he responds in faith. Faith under fire it's calm and it's courageous. Faith under fire is calm and it's courageous. So, last week uh, after the, the sermon, I had a conversation with someone who talked about this idea of fear and was talking about some of the people they knew uh, during pandemic who'd made all sorts of decisions about fear and was still there and all sorts of stuff. And we talked about this reality that if you're uh, basis for life is based on fear, and you're very afraid of what's going on. Uh, you, you don't act or behave or believe the way you maybe want to. And it causes us to do all sorts of things. Did you know that fear is one of the key strategies of the enemy? Satan's key strategy is fear. James says that perfect love, God's love, drives out fear. And we often think that the opposite of love is hate or anger. It's actually not. It's fear. Fear causes us to distance ourselves from people. Fear makes us make really bad choices and decisions that are, are about self-preservation. It's frantic. It's worried. It's, it's these astrologers in front of King Nebuchadnezzar trying to trick him, thinking they're, you know, oh, great king, give us more time. And this is, he sees right through it. And they respond that way. But Daniel responds differently. So these magicians respond with fear. Fear under fire is fast and frantic. Let's consider how David responded. Remember those two attributes of God. David's foundation of faith is based on these two things. That God is sovereign and he makes the plans. And because God is sovereign, 
He can reveal those plans and will. And when we believe he is in charge and we know that he can tell us how to live in his plan and can reveal that, then we have greater faith, even if we don't know the end. Remember, this, this is a prophecy that is very vague. And th- they don't know about these kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar just knows that he has a kingdom and he'll be overthrown at some point. He knows that some other kingdom in some way is going to come and smash them all to bits and be greater and cover the whole world. Daniel doesn't have a lot to go on. But his faith is solid. So as I looked at this narrative and considered all the different ways that Daniel behaved, here's a few things I picked out that make the difference between responding from a foundational rootedness of faith in God rather than fear over our circumstances. First of all, he didn't panic. When Arioch came to kill him, how did he respond? It said he handled the situation, this version, NLT, he handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. What? I think if I had somebody at my door saying, uh, come with me, you're going to be killed now. Didn't even say it like, I don't understand. What do you mean I'm going to be killed? Well, you're a pastor and all pastors are going to be killed. Why? Who's, what? No. <laughs> That's not, like, I don't think that my natural inclination would be to calm down, ask to go see the king. Like, whoever decreed this, why would I have audience? But Daniel responded with that. Even greater than that is that he believed God would come through before he had a promise that God would do it. He didn't know how God would... Daniel responded in faith before he had an answer from God. That's, that's nuts, isn't it? His faith was so deep in God that before he had any sense of what God was going to do, he said, just take me to the king. And we'll work this out as we go. So before he had a promise from God, he began to respond on God's behalf with wisdom and discretion, integrity, humility. He asked for time. So the astrologer stalled for time. He asked for it. He just said, just give me some more time. But he acted in a timely manner. He wasn't stalling. He just said, just give a bit of time for me to seek God. God will come through. We just, we just got to give a bit of time. So he, he asked for time, but he acted in a timely manner. He wasn't stalling or faking or any of that. He prayed right away. As soon as he gets back from the king, I'm sure he was praying the whole time too, but specifically called his friends to prayer. And through that prayer, received his answer and went right away. And when he spoke, he was calm and he was courageous. He had humility. He said, King, look, this isn't about me. God is speaking to you. No one can know this. The astrologers are right. Don't, don't punish them. They're right. Nobody can know this. Only the gods, but there is one God above them all. There are not other gods. There are demons and all that stuff. But he speaks into the Babylonian context and says, God wants you to know. In fact, God has planted this in your heart and he wants you to understand. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. I I can't do this on my own. And he kind of sidesteps in humility and says, this is about you and God, but if I get a part in this, here's what I'll do. And he just explains what God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. Faith under fire is calm and courageous. 
Now, if you're in an emergency situation, you're a frontline responder, okay? Uh, I'm not, so I don't know, but here's what I assume. When you come up on a situation, uh, you don't have time to train <laughs> to, you know, respond to that situation. Your training beforehand needs to cover as many different types of situations as possible. Because if you've only trained to fight a fire in a one-story house, and you come to a 13-story building, and you have no experience, you're not going to pull up in your fire trucks. The chief isn't going to pull out a big screen and say, hey, look, we got to go through all these policy and training before you guys can run in there. Just, just have a seat. Take your mask off. We're going to take a half hour. We're going to train this thing through. We're going to do a little bit of a practice, okay? The people on the top floors, they may not make it, but we will. We'll go down. We'll eventually get there. You can't do that. When you're on the hot seat, when you're under fire, it's instant. You've got to make these decisions. And so what we gravitate most towards naturally is fear. You have someone at your door saying, it's time for you to die, This is your fate. The king has decreed it. Here we go. Fear kicks in. Did for the astrologers. Did for the seers. Why? Because they had no foundation with God. They had to fix it themselves. They tried to, you know, Arioch, the king's guard, made himself look good. They're just all about themselves. And so they're fearful and panicked because they know there's very little we can control. But if you can gravitate towards faith, there's a foundation there where you're rooted so you can be calm and courageous, because you believe before God acts that he's going to, and you believe with all your heart. How is it that in an emergency situation, how is it when you're on the hot seat, how is it when you're under fire, you can be rooted and established in faith? It's all the rest of the time. Firemen, firewomen, whatever we call them now, fire people, okay, they train. When there's not an emergency. And they train regularly, and they train hard, and they train often. When there's not an emergency. So when the emergency comes, what happens? That emergency training kicks in instinctively. Now there's someone there to, you know, oversee it and things like that. That's part of the reason why Daniel asked his friends. We need others to help us in those situations. But he was solid. Last week we talked about Daniel determining in his heart not to be defiled. This is the same thing. We need to determine when we're in seasons of peace or we're not under fire, we're not on the hot seat. It's not high stakes, little time to grow in our faith, to learn to pray, to learn to listen to God's voice, to know his word, to be rooted and established with a community, with a church family who we're close enough to to call up our people at two in the morning and say, hey, you got to pray. Like, I don't know what to do. Um, help. But I trust God's going to get me through this. You have to do that now. Because if you're not doing that now, if you're not spending time with God throughout the day and, and, and growing in him, digging down deep roots in your faith when the emergency comes, all you're going to be able to do it's panic. It's panic. You're going to be frantic. You're going to try and do things fast. You're going to try and do it all yourself. And often 
we make a mess. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up for people who've made a decision like that and had it go very bad, but I would imagine that every hand, if you're honest, would go up. We've all done that. But find in Daniel something different. Just as last week we saw that Daniel and his three friends responded differently, so this week. And God blessed them last week for taking a stand and not defiling themselves and doing it in a wise, discerning, humble, Christ-like character way, and it's the same today. And so when Daniel and his three friends stand before the king, guess what, the, the, guess what happened? The king falls on his face before Daniel and starts to worship Daniel, calls for sacrifices to Daniel and his God. And like Daniel's, no, don't worship me. But Daniel is promoted to being in charge of all those astrologers, seers, all the wise men in Babylon, and he stays serving in the king's court, overseeing all that. And Daniel uses his position to get his three friends promoted somewhere else in the province of Babylon. We're not quite sure, but we know that in chapter 3 next week, that's why Daniel and his three friends are not together. Sometimes we wonder, well, where was Daniel in all this? He was just in a different, there are different parts. And so, God blesses. In these two chapters, it's interesting because the result of Daniel's determination, the result of Daniel's deep-rooted foundational faith that God is sovereign and can reveal what we're supposed to do in the moment and belief that God will even before he does ends in blessing. Like Daniel's promoted. His friends are promoted. In fact, the wording about this distressing dream, if you, if you really look at the, the, the way the Hebrew works, at least the scholars say this, is that it really mirrors what happens with Joseph and Pharaoh, if you know that story, that narrative, when Joseph is interpreting dreams for Pharaoh. And it may be that as Daniel's writing this, he's hoping that his readers will call back and see that it's a similar situation, that God is faithful time and time again. And we see in these two chapters that God blesses. But the next few chapters we see a deep faith and we see that things don't always work out initially and that determining to not defile ourselves and determining in our hearts to be people of faith rooted in a foundation that God is in control and that God can reveal his plans and, and to, to walk calm and courageously with his strength doesn't always work out initially but God is always a part of it and even in the depths of what we struggle with, he's there. But for now, we'll kind of put a, put a pin in that. And I want to ask you simply, where are you at with God? Because when the emergency hits, when we're under fire, uh, when you're sitting on that metal stool, and you know you're going to get shocked, you don't know how, you don't know when, you just know it's coming, are you prepared for that? You're prepared according to your relationship with God and your relationship with others. We need each other desperately. We need God desperately. Christianity is not about being a good moral person. Notice none of this narrative talks about Daniel, you know, going to the temple and making sacrifices and, and being a, a good moral person. It says he depended on God. He acted with God-like humility and character. He had God's wisdom. He had discretion. God was working in him because he already already was close to God. He was already growing in character, so when the emergency came, it was just behaving like normal. It was just a different, more difficult situation. So he's not fast and frantic. 
was calm and courageous. What's your relationship with God like? Are you close to him? Here's the great thing about God. If God speaks to a pagan king to, to develop and begin relationship with him, the same king who's like depending on astrologers and people calling on demons and all sorts of craziness, the same man who in his power, you know, decrees that there would be murder of all these people, like he doesn't sound like a good guy. But God's reaching out to him. And if God is reaching out to him and wants a relationship with him, God definitely wants a relationship with you. And if you've never decided to follow Jesus before, man, let this just go to show how longing God is to be near you. You may not have a dream, but the Holy Spirit works in our hearts in the same way. And if you're wandering from God, you just don't feel as close to him, you don't feel strong, you're not growing in your faith, you don't have connections here, you don't have your, your people, your church family, the great thing about God is you could take a thousand steps away from him. And it's always just one step back. It's always one step back. Now, there's growth that needs to happen, but it's one step back. He always takes you back. He knows right where you are and how to set you on your feet and set you on your way so that you journey together, so that you grow in your faith, so that you grow in your wisdom. You grow in who you are. You become more Christ-like so that when the hard times come, when you're on the hot seat, when you're under fire, you know that Jesus is with you. And you know what to do, even if you don't know what to do, because he's close. Let's pray.